0: makers. it's been quite some time since you last heard from me but i come bearing a gift to make up for old times our lost times i should say notably what i hope will be an inspiring and interesting conversation with a woman who inspired me the moment i heard her speak i would like to welcome ambassador swani hunt to the catalyst
1: thank you <laughs> audrey i am I said well, let's carve out the time let's make it happen this is a spectacular young woman and uh i'm here for you thank you so much ambassador
0: it's a real honor to host you on the catalyst as you exemplify everything i had in mind when i first created the catalyst which is to interview people to engage with people who are catalyzing impactful moments in their careers communities and countries right really determined exemplary, inspiring people. And you are a true trifecta in that regard, Ambassador Hunt. So my first question for you is how did you become a United States ambassador and why did you
1: decide to answer the call of leadership? Well, the whole question of leadership is really important one to me because when I was growing up in Dallas, Texas, I was born in 1950, and that was before the women's movement, which was led by Gloria Steinem. So long before, We were using like MS before a person's name. In fact, you were usually identified in terms of your husband. So uh, I think that all had an effect on me in terms of my sense of leadership. And um, so I would start an organization and the obvious thing would be for me to be the president or the chair or whatever. I always said, no, 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 I'll I'll help. You know, I'll, I'll be in the wings. I'll make sure it happens. And that's a real trap. I think there's much less of that nowadays, but there's probably still that that sense that women have. Um, and I know this is true because of my work with women and girls now, that sense of, gee, am I really up to this? And I remember Hillary Clinton before the presidential campaign, she was saying how she would offer a man a job and, you know, a promotion and he would say, sure. Yeah, sure. And she would offer it to a woman and she would say, do you really think I can do it? You're, or, well, I, I really don't know that topic um, uh, or, uh, you know, let me have some time to, to learn more about it. You know? And She said, it was striking. So even today in 2020s, it's not as different as you would think from the 1950s. So, I was—I um, wished sometimes that I was a le- the leader of something. But um, when I was in Denver, I had—I left home. Actually, really worked at leaving home. I married right after my uh, sophomore year in college, like within a couple of weeks. And then we went off to Heidelberg germany which was great to just have an identity you know and uh then um then came back to the united states settled not in dallas where everyone expected but in denver my father had like 14 children i was the only i was the youngest and i was the one who didn't come home right and so i wanted to find my own way and it was really hard there i remember going up to the petroleum club uh which is where the deals are made my my family was oil and gas and i just wanted to test i wanted to push it so i went up there with vice president of the company i said because we had said we were going to have lunch sometime i I said okay he said i'll make reservations i said no i'll make the reservations right being the ornery person that i can be and so we go up to the petroleum club and go to the you know the, the doors of the elevator open and there's this tall black man in a red coat. And he says, welcome. And he points to the right and says, there's a beautiful table for you. I said, oh, no, no, thank you. Um, I actually see the reservation with my name on it over to the left. Now to the right is the ladies dining room. And he said, but we have a, we have a table for you right by the window. And I said, actually, no, I, um, I'd be in the main dining room. And we went back and forth with me. One of the things we learned to do in the women's movement was just say it over and say it over and say it over and keep your cool, you know. And and so I was trying. And he finally said, ma'am, I can take you to that table and it will cost me my job. And, you know, Audrey, that was the moment. It was one of those moments when I realized I had more in common with him than I did with the vice president of Hunterwell Company, because neither of us were welcome in the places where the deals were made. So, yeah, so it really took a big push for me to be, get past that. And um, the, key, the key person in those years for me was not just Gloria Stein, and we were in the streets, you know. Demonstrated because women were making forty nine cents on a man's dollar for the same work, but but then uh, the other person who was in the streets in another state was Hillary Clinton. Like she was born three years before I was, and we both had unruly blonde hair, and you know with the big the big bottle bottom glasses, I mean you know and, we, we, and the stripes. Um, the striped slacks and you know, the whole thing and we were both quite religious and hers was Methodist mine was Baptist like really close and so we were both very motivated by our our faith and by our sense of social justice and when she and I discovered each other when her husband was running for president I was much much more interested in her than I was in him and she knew that, and uh, I I became very active in the campaign. And she called me to thank me for all the support I'd been giving to Bill, and meaning Governor Clinton. And I said, "Oh, that wasn't for for Governor Clinton. That was for you." And she got completely quiet. And I said, "No, I mean, I, you know, I." It just, it just is. I wouldn't be doing it except for you. I'm near the person that that I, um, that I feel connected to. So then when he won, which was against in my book All Odds, I'd never voted for anyone who'd won, you know and so he did and and then I became more of an insider uh, because she and I had connected so firmly over these issues of public education. Of poverty in the inner city, of uh, mental health, etc. Those were the things I was working on in the city, and she was working on it in um, in Little Rock, Arkansas. She headed up all kinds of initiatives for her husband, etc. As she did when she became president, but it became time then to appoint the people in various positions, and I had been part of the what's called the transition, as you can imagine. And so I said, I want to work on the role of women in foreign policy and ways that we can increase those numbers. There were very, very few women ambassadors. I mean, it's, it seems I, you would be shocked if you had been there and and had seen how, how th- there had to be a class action suit to get women appointed. And it, you, it was around that time. If you married and your husband became an ambassador, you had to leave the foreign service. Yeah, and you know it's just it was just incredible um, how it was how pervasive it was, whether it was in the government or whether it was in families. And I I was around Audrey when it was um, not illegal to beat up your your partner, your wife, right? And we were really active in getting laws passed about that and because cops would come to the house, they'd be screaming and they'd come in, they'd open the door, they'd say, it's a family affair and they'd close the door. So we had to, you know, we had a lot to do in those times like we do now, but but the things we had to do then, they were so integral to who I was. And so, when then it was time to appoint the ambassadors, Hillary said, I was told by the new administration, I want her to be one of the ambassadors. And the administration people, they said, you yep, what Hillary says is gonna happen. And, uh, but it's interesting how, it's because she and I had bonded as two women and we bonded over the issues of the poor, really. So then I, I my husband is saying, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. And he was a big push. 1st I've been married twice. My first husband, they're both great guys. My first husband was a minister, Baptist minister. And we connected in such important ways. He taught me so much about how to go deep. He, um, he was liberal. Politically, I didn't know anything about that, et cetera, et cetera. But when there was one point as I was in my early thirties, he became very distant and I said, you know, what's going on, et cetera. And he said, he finally said, you don't need me. And I said, yeah, but I choose you. Isn't that better? And we couldn't get there. We, we just, we, we couldn't make the change together. But it's true, I was becoming my own person. I met Charles. He was a symphony conductor. And, Audrey, I have a thing about men on stages. I'll put it out there because Sigmund Freud would put it out there too, you know. So I'm a good audience member. And so I am very encouraging of these guys. When he heard, we went out on our first date, and he's, you know, it was one of these um, sort of boring First, well, let me let me look him over, because Mark and I had divorced at that point, and and he said, uh, "So what are you working on, or what do you do?" And I said, "Well, I'm leading a mental health reform uh, for the chronically mentally ill, because we have to we have to just completely change the system." <laughs> I had gone out with like four guys, and when I would say that, it was kind of like testing them, and they would glaze over. I mean, you talk about. Uh, what shall I say? An unromantic, uh, you know. Th- there was nothing. There was nothing of a teaser in there. And Charles leaned forward, put his hands together, you know, a- and you know, clasped and leaned forward across the table. He said, "Really?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "How are you doing that? Like what? Like how are you? Are you engaging the city council? Or is the, is the mayor involved? Or are you doing it from a grassroots? I mean, been, who is this guy?" Who is this guy? And sure enough, you know, we ended up getting married right away. I thought, you know, first of all, by the way, I'm a, you know, I'm a pianist, so symphony conductors, I mean, how many are there, right, coming along? So that was pretty cool. And I, I didn't love him, actually. I thought, well, I've already done the bells and whistles with my first husband, you know, but, but this guy, he has so much of what I want and who I want. So I just... Asked some friends and they said, oh, yeah, you know, I don't love my husband either. But, you know, we have all these things, you know, in common and it works. It's really, you know, you can get the love. You know, I mean, you know, you can make it all work. It's like a puzzle. So I did. I actually came to love him a lot, a whole lot. You know, I, I guess that happens sometimes in arranged marriages. So then he was pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing for me to become ambassador. And I, we would lie in bed and he would say, so, have you been on the Hill? When, when was the last time you were in the senator's office? I said, well, you know, and um, I saw this Republican guy who's on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He said, well, how did that go? I said, well, he just saw me because of my brother. I mean, he's a really nice guy, but, you know. And he said, well, what about Janet Reno? She was the attorney general, first woman. And I said, honey, she's dealing with a, a massive disaster in Waco, you know, where there was this whole, uh, terrorist cult kind of situation and they bur- burned the place down. And I said, I don't think this is her, you know, top priority. I said, well, have you seen Biden? I said, Charles, go to bed. You know, <laughs> said, no, you've got to go see Biden. I said, go to sleep, Charles. Come on, come on, go to sleep. And he would just keep going, you know, et cetera. I did go. Joe Biden was the chair of the committee. That confirmed me. I got there. I said, Charles, I don't know anything about foreign policy. He said, You're a quick study. And I, you know, it's like he was so gung ho. And, you know, that's a guy who's used to getting up on a stage and taking out a little white stick and waving it around in the air, and all these people start fiddling. I mean, but he wanted me to be in that position. So, one of the things I would say to your listeners is choose your partner really, really carefully, really carefully. And you may need to put the bells and whistles aside in terms of, you know, the being so in love, et cetera. Just choose, choose someone who really believes in you, whom you respect. And that, that is so important to know that this person is not going to be intimidated by you as you rise into your, your full leadership.
0: Your full leadership, that that's exactly it. And what I love about what led you to that moment of answering the call of leadership is that you had support, but also there was this sort of heroine's journey of coming to the place where he says, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to take center stage, right? Just like Charles, I'm gonna take center stage and I'm going to use my voice and I'm going to support what I believe is just and what I believe is right. And I love that there's so many critical change makers in your story, first Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and other people who supported you, who were like, yeah, absolutely, we want you, you should do it. This is why I love talking to people who have experience, because I think sometimes we forget that there was a past and that everything today wasn't as it was before. And what you were talking about that, what you guys were fighting for back in the day was integral, right? The idea that domestic violence is a family affair. I mean, today people would be just so appalled, but back then, right? And I love that you've always been fighting the good fight, right? I think people who are true change makers, have a demonstrated track record of always doing something. It doesn't have to be big, right? But always doing something to to support. You talked about wanting to do things for poverty and also wanting to do things for mental health, which, again, is part of the conversation today. So it's like, the more things change, the more they say the same. We keep marching, right? Inch by inch, right? You know, my past episode, I interviewed a woman who wrote a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room. It was in the context of business, right? But I want to talk to you about that in the context of government because you've been a big advocate for women. I'm reminded of your latest book, Rwandan Women Rising, and how you have been really pushing when it comes to discussions of peacemaking and security for more women to be in the room because that affects
1: things. Yeah. I right. Right.
0: And I could you talk to us why that's important?
1: Yeah. 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 Well, you know. I- I have to put out that there's a real peril in the pursuit of trying to figure out if the um, the presence of women makes a big difference. Because it's so easy to be dismissed as being simply chauvinistic about that. We used to oversimplify and say nature and nurture, you know, which one is it? And, and being at Harvard has been a real help because I'm around people, who, women in particular, who think a lot about that and say to me things like, well, clearly, you're born with different makeup physiologically. Obviously, there's a very wide range for women, and there's a very wide range for men. And we see that even more now with the whole trans movement, right? But there's something that happens when you're born, which is the cascading effect. So you're born as a girl, and then people start expecting certain things of you or expecting them from a man. Now, we also know, however, that if you look at hormones and you look at how brains are working and how even a little infant, the the smallest infants in a crib, if you hang a mobile, you know what that is, over the crib so that the baby's looking up when the baby isn't able to do much else, right? And if you have faces on the cards that are that are facing the baby from up above him or her compared to geometric shapes the little boy tiny we're talking about weeks old right will stare at the geometric shapes and the little girl infant will stare at the faces you can measure that right and so you have this combination of things happening and so like well, i wouldn't be oh y'all i wouldn't be a guy for anything oh Neither would I. (laughs) Oh, God. Because I just think they come with so many strikes against them, ironically. I I just can't imagine how much they have to work at not being, you know, not slugging people. You know, I mean, seriously. And then I look at women and the decibel level, it's so interesting, Deborah Tannen, Georgetown, has actually taken tape recorders out to a playground and taped little girls, you know, second graders playing a game and little boys playing a game. And the number of syllables that come out of the mouths of the little girls is so much more than the little boys. You know, the little boys are kind of slugging each other and the little girls are just. So those are real. And the question is, how do we let our penchant? Because I think there is one for, for relationships. How do we use that for good? And my belief is that, and this was a hypothesis, but I actually have spent the last 25 years showing that this is true. And, and that is that if, in fact, you elevate women leaders in very dicey situations, in other words, if they're in Palestine and Israel, right, or if they're in Sudan or if they're in Colombia, right, and it's never... All women, it's never all men, but you know that. But as a group, the women, they will prevent a war or stop it or stabilize the country after war much more quickly than men will. Men will be more successful at that if there are women even there. you know. And like men, when, when you add women, even a few women to a group of men, it changes the behavior of men a lot. And so it's just amazing that that we didn't figure that out and haven't figured it out. And that's what I've been pounding away on in terms of foreign policy. I call it inclusive security. One of the things that women do, actually, which you wouldn't automatically know, is that women will look around the table and say, who else isn't here? And they find the, the people in the Hill Tribes and they say, you know, why aren't there any young people represented here? How come How come we're talking about all the people who are being maimed, et cetera, and, and none of them are on the table, you know? Like we need to hear from their persp- perspective too. And and what about people who are over 65, 70? Don't you think they might have a wisdom? to bring? And so, so the peace agreements that have women as signatories, even just a few women, women who've been very actively involved, a lot of them last 20 years. And normally, five years is about the average that a peace agreement lasts. So you're talking about stabilizing. The highest predictor of a war is if a country has already been at war, because it's like a helix, right? You, You have the conflict, and then it never quite is solved because you get really corrupt people who go in immediately after and you know, they see it as an opportunity, they go into the vacuum, and then you you don't have stability again and you go back into the war again. So if you can elongate the period of time without a war from five years to 20, that changes the world. I was talking to Hillary, we were working on helping countries create strategies for elevating women, particularly in conflict areas, but in general and they're about 90 now. And she and I were, it was really interesting. She was doing a book signing, right? You know, I I take the opportunities to see her. I don't mind standing in a rope line, you know, and going through, and then we do a lot of hugging and kissing, and then I keep going, right? So anyway, she was signing this book, a book after she was Secretary of State. And I said, so I'll see you in a couple of weeks for this gathering that we're going to have with people from seven countries, teams from seven countries, all of whom are creating these plans, multi-year plans across the government to elevate women. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. And then she looked at me and she said, this is the hope for the world, isn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. And that was one of those moments I'll, I'll never forget. You know, it was it was this kind of a going back into your thinking. It was a very contemplative way that she said it. Like, this is the hope for the world. She's one of, of course, the smartest people who's ever been born. And, and for her to come to that conclusion, after being the head of the foreign policy establishment for the most powerful country in the world, it's such a simple, simple statement. Uh, but she and I worked on that particular issue for decades together. There was this moment, Audrey, where I had hosted negotiations to end a war. It was kind of the Syria of the time. And uh, I was in Bosnia as the country of Yugoslavia was breaking apart with the fall of communism, et cetera. And it was a genocide. It was a genocide against the Muslims perpetrated by the Christians. So there was this, terrible massacre, 8,000 boys and men unarmed who were all rounded up and shot. And I then pulled together an event a year later with the mothers who had lost their husbands, their sons, their brothers, every man in their life. And that was, you know, it, it's hard to describe what that is like in a whole group of them. And we, we had like thousands of them in this stadium, et cetera right before it started, I said, you know, we need security. And the US, the the three-star general is saying that he won't give us security unless we invite the mothers of the perpetrators. Now, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because those are mothers of 20-year-olds that killed their 20-year-olds, right? Because the general said, look, you have to be even-handed. I said, "No, no, come on, come on come on. And he said, nope, we're not going to do provide the security. Right. Okay. So I asked, and as soon as I got the words out of my mouth, I thought, Oh, Swanee, I can't believe you did that. Cause I know a lot, a lot about mental health and uh, you don't ask someone who's traumatized like that, you know, Oh, Hey, could we have, you know, the mother of the people who did this to your, to you and to your family. And the woman looked at me and she said, Ambassador Swanee, yeah, we're all mothers. That has stayed with me. It's kind of like Hillary saying, this is the hope of the world, isn't it? And this other woman saying, we're, we're all mothers. You know, there are these simple, simple statements. You don't have to make it much more complex than that. You have to have women teaching men and you have to have women who are being taught by people like my husband, Charles, you know, to push forward. It's hard for me. It isn't now. I mean, it's hard to get me now to kind of hold back, but, you know, because I, it turns out that I had some natural leadership to add, but I'll tell you, Audrey, sometimes the answers are, they're so obvious and it's really on us. It really is on us as men and women to, build our lives around some basic truths. Exactly,
0: exactly, basic truths. And I think a basic truth, of course, my own opinion is that there's a synergy that comes about when both men and women are working together, you know, using how our brains function independently together to create things that are of the collective good, right? And I love that you talked about how there is a difference, right? But that doesn't make it bad or one's better, but that there is a difference, right? And we acknowledge that difference, we move forward. And also when you mention these simple truths, I'm a big, big, big student of gratitude and mindfulness. And mindfulness will tell you that all the answers are within, right? And so when that mother recognized that, you know, at the end of it, the other side are also mothers, right? And we share that commonality. I think that's harder than anything else is to find that commonality and, you know, It's important. It's important. And I want to talk about how we met each other, Swanee, or virtually met each other in the world we live in, because I met you at a very impactful moment in my life, because I was taking this course that changed my perspective on everything. And it was Professor Orlando Patterson's course on human trafficking, which is definitely something we all know exists, but the depth, the breadth, the complexity, the nuances, that you have to be, you know, shown that, taught that, and you gave a special lecture, um, and you said so many things that just opened my mind. But something that really stuck out to me, and again, this is moving the conversation to a different direction. But similarly to when we're talking about just the gravity of society, and you know, you said something about human trafficking, where you basically said, you know, we can't really have a conversation about human trafficking without first having a conversation about prostitution, right? And leading back to what we've been talking about with women in leadership, right? If women are taught at a very early age, there are opportunities for you, multiple plentiful opportunities for you, go forth, you know, we will support you. Imagine what the world would look like. And I think when it comes to prostitution, we learned in that course that, you know, the people who are suffering the most are women, right? If you could expand on your statement about how those two things work in tandem, right? This human trafficking,
1: phenomenon issue and also prostitution. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because I, I think about it a lot because I'm an ardent feminist. And so when I talk to someone like Gloria Steinem, who really was the breakthrough leader on on um, women's rights, etc., in the 60s and 70s, and she says the idea that women are using the word choice, you know, that is not what we were fighting for. And you have a right, she would say, you, would, you don't have a right to be a prostitute, but you have the right to not be prostituted. And the, what she meant by that is there are certain choices you can make in which you may not be damaged. But because you are creating, you're fueling another system, that may not be damaging you but it's damaging your sisters and by the by the you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands in fact worldwide of course you're talking about millions so and so the in terms of prostitution when some people say well it's a career i understand that i think do i believe people should choose their careers absolutely are there some choices that are off limits and I would say yes there are and the reason is because a man if this is all to me about the buyer a man buying doesn't go up to a woman or a girl and say by the way how old are you and can you prove that and he doesn't say are you in any way a victim of force or fraud or coercion those are the definitions of trafficking he didn't ask her that question <laughs> and if he did What's she gonna say? Yes, I am, and but my pimp said I have to do this, so therefore, I mean, you know, come on. I don't know how, since since trafficking is embedded in prostitution, it isn't the same as prostitution, but it doesn't exist outside of prostitution. When I say trafficking, I'm talking about sex trafficking. I don't know how you get to it to sort of carve it out because the buyer isn't carving it out and the women are going to say no i'm not being trafficked because they're they're in that the, the trafficked women and girls there's a reason they're there what you do though is you're increasing the demand when you like for example decriminalize i was talking to someone and i actually taped this audrey i should send it to you she was in quote the life started as a teenager i don't know how old and until she was 30, African-American. She said, look, right now, the number of men who are buying women and girls' bodies, it's a small number. I mean, 20% of the men in the country say they have, but it's only about one and a half percent that are responsible for 75% of the buying. Because they're buying like, once a month, twice a month, once a week, twice a week, right? And so those are the ones you have to to go after. So, so this isn't a major social upheaval that you're talking about. But she says, what happens if you decriminalize? And I, I have her word for word on tape, and this is what she says. She said, so the demand is going to go through the roof because there are all these men who say, I'm not buying now, but I would consider it if it weren't, if there weren't uh, obstacles to it, such as I could be arrested. Right? So you decriminalize it. You say, okay, it's okay to be a prostitute, which I absolutely believe you have to decriminalize. You must decriminalize. You don't, you don't punish the abused. Right? The full decrim is that you also, you take away any penalty for being the buyer or the pimp or the brothel owner, okay? You just wipe the slate completely clean as if when you do that, you're somehow fixing a situation and actually what you're doing is you're doubling the number of men. I mean, it has such an opposite uh, effect. And, And what she said is she said you know she runs a program for for girls right who've been trafficked and she said so what's going to happen what's going to happen you're going to end up with twice as many of these guys and who are they going to be buying you know who they're going to be buying these white entitled because they do tend to be much you know wealthier etc than guys do to be buying that often yeah so these white entitled guys they're not gonna be buying the white entitled women who are saying, I should have these choices, right? They're gonna be buying the black and brown, the black and brown girls, the black and brown women, because that group is represented way disproportionately among the women and girls who are uh, trafficked. And so she, like she said, it just makes me crazy she said it's a travesty. And so she, you know, she's the real deal that that's her world. It's not mine. I mean, I, I get the theory of it, but Audrey, I'm not in this. I mean, as much as I've said about, you know, women, you know, and I've been talking to you about what it was like finding my voice as a woman, that isn't why I do the work I do on the trafficking because I'm not into rescuing women and girls. I just, that whole, I mean, it it has almost no effect. It feels good to the rescuer. And I'm not saying, I shouldn't say it like 100%, but if you look at the lives of those women and girls, I mean, they they end up back in the life. Most of them do. And it's just so hard to help them stay out. But I'm in it because of white on black-brown. That to me is the issue. It is so clearly white entitlement on black-brown vulnerability.
0: Right, right. And what you said about choice and how people are using a label, you know, that the older generation was using to talk about very concrete issues, very structural issues, to now talk about something that they want to do because they believe that they get to do that and people get to do what they want. But when you said that, well, the choice we make have a cascading effect on everyone else that that's the critical part and you know people know this that we know this about so many different things right because if we participate in one system and it hurts another person we're effectively participating in that person's suffering right and when it comes to you know prostitution or you know being a voluntary sex worker it's tricky because what you mentioned is that you have people that are coming into sex work from a very privileged position right they want to do it, they get to do it. But then you have people where it's like structural issues. And we Mm -hmm. learned this in class, very structural issues that contribute to that. And until those structural issues are addressed, we can decriminalize it. And as you said, and as that woman said, you know, very, very vulnerable people are going to get hurt. And I'm reminded of the case of Germany, right, where you have decriminalization, but effectively what's happening is that the people that are being trafficked, because that's still happening, and the people that are you know, the prostitutes, the majority of the prostitute at these brothels in Germany are not native born German women. Mm-hmm. They're people who are being trafficked into Germany. Mm-hmm. But again, it was created to help the women. So it's it's a very nuanced, complex issue and I think is rather important, which is why I call that course very impactful. And your lecture was also so impactful because the choices we make, as you said, have a cascading effect. And what I'm seeing now, the younger generation and the prevalence of OnlyFans and this idea that, oh, you know, there's this platform and we can use it want it just to make some easy money or just to make money that we need. But the issue that I'm seeing is that it's not fixing the root of it, which is economic insecurity, which is wages haven't increased in like decades, things like that. I think this idea that, oh, it's all a choice. If we think critically about it, like, no, there's a larger issue at play. And so I think this conversation is very
1: important. Yeah, I, and they're, as you said, nuanced, but it, I don't want to hide behind the idea that it's nuanced because what what important issue isn't, right? And yes, you're right about the structural problems in all of this. And, and of course we say women ought to have, they need it for the money. We, so if you were going to say, okay, we there's a shortage of corneas, in such and such country and we're going to ship corneas, you know, and they do. I mean, people, there is a shortage and there are, you know, people who get corneas and, and so you say, okay, so we're going to, anyone who will give us a right eye, we will, you know, we'll pay you for it. You know, we'll pay you $10,000 for your right eye. Well, does that make it okay? And the answer is no. In part, because what you're doing, you're fueling, you're fueling a whole industry. Even if you say, I need the $10,000, et cetera, there's just, we have such understandable clear limits in terms of what is okay. And of course there's nuance, but we have a gut feeling about, no, there is a line. And there are, there is social good and there is social bad. And I don't want to participate in some kind of activity that may help me and cause tremendous damage for others.
0: Exactly. We're fueling, we're fueling, and we don't want to fuel. And I appreciate the moment that we're in now as a country, because it feels like we're having these heightened conversations about the ways in which we fuel certain things. I think that's very important. But it seems to me when it comes to this conversation, everyone's like, oh, you can just do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. It's it's an
1: interesting moment in time. yeah. It, because remember that this is a two-person interaction. It's not just me as a woman. Mm-hmm. It only works for me as a woman if I can get a buyer, right? Either I go out and find a buyer, or or the buyer finds me, but even if it's the latter, I am encouraging the buyer, right? Now what happens after that night that I'm with the buyer? What happens psychologically is the buyer liked what happened, right? Looks for the next. So Then that's when you get this cascade as we were talking about, because it's not just about me wanting to get some money, some money, right, quick money. I'm selling myself, not just to a guy, I'm selling myself to a system that is an entrapment for people who are very, very, very vulnerable. And it's not right.
0: Incredibly vulnerable, exactly. And you know, we're talking in gender terms currently because as we learned in the course, it's very gendered, right? The majority of the sex workers are women and the majority of the buyers are men. And your earlier comment about when we talk about people who are coming over and over weekly, monthly, there's a very particular demographic that one can afford to do that. Right. And so it sounds very gendered. And, you know, I think people listening might push back and say, well, you know, Audrey, choice matters and you don't want to just talk about these things as if people are just in it for the money. And, you know, that's another conversation (laughs) that I don't believe I'm qualified to speak on. But I think the money thing is very important because, again, I think it speaks to this larger thing of economic insecurity. Right. And I think if we're all going to ascribe to a social
1: contract, right, that should come with some semblance of security. right? But, and that's where social change takes a lot of creativity. You actually don't have to be that creative to come up with what I'm about to say, which is you arrest the guy, you put you put up a fake ad, okay? Uh, I'm Georgia, and I have a fresh pussy and whatever you say, okay? And then the and the phone calls start coming in about one every three minutes. And and the text messages. And it it is, it's unbelievable. And a lot of it is just, you know, wanting to talk and say, you know, who are you really and what do you do? And, you know, but, but she can stay very busy, right? So what happens if you have a fake sting and there isn't a Georgia really, and on the other end is police and they pick up? Now, if you have the right laws, what you can have happen is that, the man, it's, by the way, it's illegal all across the United States, just a few counties outside Las Vegas. Anyway, so why not have a law that says, uh, yeah, if you do this, because it is against the law, you're going to have a minimum fine of XYZ and a maximum of this. And what do you do with the money? What you do with the money is you divide it. You, you give a lot of it to the women for education, for housing, for et cetera. And so that's where you get the money that will help them get out of the trap, help them get ready for another kind of career. I mean, in other words, the men are paying for it. There's no reason not to have the men pay for it. And if you want to really get a little more sophisticated, you divide the money and, and you carve out enough to pay for one more vice squad you know, in the system. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, a multiplier effect. I mean, This is doable and it's been done in a bunch of countries. The United States is behind this, you know, relate to the party. I wonder why I use that metaphor. I mean, really, you know. But anyway, it is so doable and it's so basic. It goes all the way back to Hillary Clinton saying, you know, we need to be thinking about the poor kids, you know, and the vulnerable, the mentally ill, you know, uh, that all plays a part. I think about 64% of the girls who are trafficked in the United States are coming out of foster care. And you have to remember why they got into foster care. They already were being sexually abused. I'll leave you with one one bit of a story which meant so much to me. I was talking to an FBI uh, officer and he told me that he, he was interviewing a pimp, and he said, where do you get your girls? And he said, the pimp said, well, I go to a shopping mall, and I look for uh, a girl who's walking by herself. Now, he's smart, right? Because at least when I was growing up, but other women too, I think, nowadays, it's a social event, you know? I mean... I don't think women and girls go to shopping malls by themselves all that much. You know, it just, it's, it's something you do with a girlfriend. So he said, I look for a girl who's by herself. And then I go up to her and I say, Hey, you know, you've got beautiful eyes. And if she looks back at me and says, thanks, I just keep going. You know where this is going, Audrey. If she looks back at me, you know, you've got beautiful eyes and she looks, at her feet and says, "No, I don't." He said, "I know I've got her." And then he is the first person, the first man he's she's ever called daddy, ever. And you put her on a witness stand later. She's a terrible, terrible witness because she's sitting there looking at the only man she's ever called daddy. So it, it's it's so much. There is so much heartbreak in that whole environment. You know, it's it's really a it's really something that needs to stop, Audrey. It's it's painful to see how it becomes what shall I say, not just overly simplified but almost hijacked by women who want to do the right thing. You know, they they want to promote choice. I get that, but not this way. Not this way. And I know that
0: you have been so incredibly generous with your time. And I want to say thank you for that. But I do like to end things on a happy note. So my last question for you, Ambassador Hunt, is that when you just think about what keeps you going, right, in terms of being the change maker that you are, in terms of having the impact that you have, supporting the causes that you do, what motivates you, right? What keeps you going?
1: That's so interesting. In part, it's relationships, but that isn't, that isn't, the, the deepest part, the the fundamental part for me is more like an inner voice. It's a basic idea, a fundamental idea that I am part of a whole, that, that I am not in any way uh, exceptional. And I mean, the only ex- exceptional part about me is that I have way too much privilege, you know, and, and that's not something to go around feeling so great about. I mean, unless you do something with it, Right. But still, I mean, that that's not a virtue. And the most virtuous people I know tend to be those who are, they are generous and don't even realize how important that, I mean, they know that their child can only have one pair of shoes for school, but they don't think about that when they're buying the other child in the neighborhood a pair of shoes. It's just it's it's this sense of connectedness. That's what keeps me going. It's it's actually Audrey, I was thinking about you as I was sitting here. I was thinking, I want to stay in touch with Audrey, you know, and, and that was right before you asked the question. And so it's like those kinds of connections are really, really important to me. I do a lot of contemplation. And I spent eight years in seminary, by the way. Good Lord, deliver us! And in it, uh, m- I had two fields that I studied. In particular, one was pastoral care, and the other was ethics. And those come together for me to say that if you care about a person, you have to care about the whole society in which that person is living. It's not tell me tell me about how rough it was in your relationship with your brother. It, it, that it's. It's much more than that. It's what is it like to be an immigrant in one of the toughest schools in the world? Actually, what is that like? And how do you add on being a woman? And how do you add on the distance from between you and one culture and another culture and and, and the prejudices? But it's even it's even more complicated and it's more. It's just such a, a tough. Row to hoe, as my grandmother would say. And so I look at you and I think, golly, you know, I, I wish I were more like Audrey. I do. I, I, um, and that's what we do for each other. that We inspire each other, but we do it on a basis of something fundamental. There has to be a core. There has to be a, a sense of right and, and good. I'm not into a lot of right and wrong. There are a lot of things that you would expect me to be into, like, I mean, I'm not motivated by the sanctity of human life. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, other people are, I'm, you know, I'm just not. I, there are a lot of things that don't motivate me that, that you would expect, but there are certain things. And it is about, for me, the deepest caring that I can find inside of myself. And this belief, the theologian, meant a lot to me. Jürgen Moltmann was his name, and he talked. He wrote a book called *The Crucified God*. So different from the idea of the all-powerful, the omniscient, etc. And, and then Elie Wiesel, in his in his book *Night*, talking about the Holocaust, and the the boy that they called the little angel, who was fourteen, and Elie Wiesel was fourteen, and 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 there's a forced march, and and the because they're hanging the little boy, and he's too light, he's too light, and so he twists and turns because his neck won't break, right? And so and they're keeping the, the prisoners marching and marching and marching and marching, and he hears this voice behind him. He me- hears some man say, "Where is God? Where is God? Where is God now?" And and Elie Wiesel wrote, "I heard a voice inside me answer." There he is. He's hanging on the gallows. We have to interpret that however we want. Is God dead? I, that's not how I take it. I I say that God is with us. And I may not talk about it in those terms. I don't. yeah, But I think there is this deep, deep, deep sense that I am part of a hole that I will never understand. I, I don't buy into streets of gold and I think, I mean, those are beautiful metaphors, I get that, right? But there is some kind of a sense of a hole. I'm not alone, I don't have to get it right. It's really more, am I leaning forward toward the good? And am I bringing other people, giving them a hand, so that we're all leaning in that direction that's that's what keeps me going
0: that is so beautiful ambassador hunt and i just want to say thank you again so much for your wisdom for your time you're welcome changemakers how phenomenal was that episode with the ambassador i mean ambassador hunt is such an incredible woman i was just so Just in awe throughout the entire conversation and talking to her, I was reminded of an episode that we did with Anne DeVereaux Mills. Do you guys remember her? Well, it turns out that Anne has her own podcast where she interviews Phenomenal women. It's called Bring a Friend. And because I consider all of you changemakers, you know, our Catalyst community, as my friends, I'm inviting you to listen to Bring a Friend let me know what you think. I think the podcast is great, but I'm much more interested in what you think. With that, changemakers, I shall see you on the other side.